Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey y'all, and welcome listeners, this is Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I'm Jacqueline Coley, I'm an editor at Rotten Tomatoes, where I cover independent film and awards. And I'm Mark Ellis, I'm a Rotten Tomatoes correspondent, stand-up comic, and Jacqueline, in my place right now, I have a little cupcake and some candles because it's a very special day. That is right. We are wishing a big, happy, happy birthday to the man himself, Mr. Nick Cage, because thankfully... Woo, 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 woo. One of the first things we get to celebrate in 2021 is the fact that it is not 2020 and it's also Nick Cage's birthday. <laughs> he, of course, is the man who has never found a line read that he could not take to the next level. The comic book aficionado, our would-be Superman, but are absolutely the man that chased after Mandy with a chainsaw, Mr. Nick Cage. And we're talking about his film where he actually steals the Declaration of Independence National Treasure. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. It is one of, for those of you that call me a curmudgeon, and I see you in the comments, I see y'all, <laughs> but I just want to say this is one of those movies where I will let myself turn off my brain and just live and enjoy. And I want to give a big shout out to our fan, Josh Pickard. I'm going to hope that I say that right. Picard? It's Maybe it's Picard. You know what? I'm giving you the Star Trek pronunciation because I want to. Oh, I thought you were worried uh, about the first name because it's like Jossie or Joss. Yeah. Or yeah. It, it's, a, it's a tough, this is a much tougher name to, to nail down than it was for Nick Cage to steal a certain <laughs> artifact that is of value to every American. I'm not going to genderize whoever has the Picard last name. I'm just going to go ahead and say thank you for emailing RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com and giving us this recommendation because I am really excited about it. And I think most of the folks on the podcast are. But the movie, let's just say it, it's at 46% rotten, which is mixed to bad. But the audience, which I'm a part of in this episode, says it's 76% fresh, as it should be. Mark... I just I, I think I know where you are on this, but hopefully you're going to say that Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. National Treasure to me is a film that deserves to be fresh in the tomato meter. So, yes, Rotten Tomatoes is very wrong in this instance. I'm not sure how Jossie Josh Pickard Picard feels, but if they wanted us to talk about National Treasure, I feel like this is one of those movies that we just we allow we, we, we give it a pass, and then every time we sit down to watch, we're like, oh, yeah, I kind of like this one, and it's just great. It's so much fun. This is, like, the closest thing that we've gotten in cinema to Indiana Jones since Indiana Jones in the 80s. Those uh, you know three what? movies. 
Hot take, as far as a movie that gets you excited about history and you learn things and it's fun, leaves Indy in the dust. Fight me. I don't care, internet. I said it. I think our guests might agree with both you and I about this one. It's going to be such a love fest today because we have not only a friend of the podcast and friends of Rotten Tomatoes, we have an incredible journalist, Mr. Marlo Stern. I'm so excited. He is the senior entertainment editor at the Daily Beast, where you can find all of his fun and witty prose. But also, he's a self-proclaimed Nicolas Cage super freak, which, wow, I didn't know that was a thing, but I want to be in that club. So it's going to be a really great time. Marlo, welcome to the show, sir. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Yes, that was that was a reference to The Rock, by the way. Oh, yes. That's now right. I get it. He is a now chemical I super freak, but he still needs a gun in The Rock. And he, I mean, there's a lot of different sorts of things that he can play around with as far as weaponry goes in this movie. His brain being one of them, the, his family <laughs> knowledge being one that can be used for or against him. But when you look at National Treasure, here's your quick synopsis is you have this family and they're just nuts about this treasure that may be a myth. It may be something that goes as far back as the Knights Templar, but far that predating even back to ancient times. And this treasure just continues to accumulate as its new protectors through the generations evolve and add to it. But does it really exist? In modern days, it just seems like we would have found it. We would have, nah, come on, we have technology. We would have found the treasure. Nicholas Cage and his family line believe it for the most part. His daddy, not so much. His grandpappy, certainly. And so now Nick Cage has taken it upon himself with his merry band of people that he some has to convince. Others are on board the whole time. Others are on his team and then turn on him. Sean Bean looking in your direction and it all adds up to a fascinating movie where the Declaration of Independence is stolen and that is just where the fun begins. Will they find the treasure? Will they survive the attempt to find the treasure? It's all in a national, a treasure. Not as good as Indiana Jones, Jacqueline, but a worthy (laughs) follow-up. Oh, really? Okay, I think... Well, Marlo, do you agree with me? I mean, I'm guessing that you think that Rotten Tomatoes is wrong, but let me just go ahead and get it on record right here and now. What are your thoughts on National Treasure? I do agree with you. I I will say it's not as good as Indiana Jones. I mean, there is full on Nazi punching in Indiana Jones. You know, I mean, I I think Indiana Jones is better. But but no, I, I do love National Treasure. I mean, mostly mostly for the insanity that is Nicolas Cage, because I mean, a lot of the other actors are kind of sleepwalking through this movie, including Harvey Keitel, who I I don't know what Harvey Keitel needed to get on what Tommy Lee Jones was on in The Fugitive or something, because he is like on sleeping pills in this movie. (laughs) I don't really know. Well, it's it's clearly a paycheck for Harvey Keitel. But I mean, no, it's mostly down to Nicolas Cage's greatness. Yeah, um, Nicolas Cage's greatness. Also, I will say not everybody is sleepwalking through this. There are there is some, I think, Doug from The Hangover. This movie is the reason why I was so upset with what they did to him in those movies. I'm like, this dude has stuff. Let him yes. come out. Yes, but- justice for Justin Bartha. He is <laughs> he he might be the star. Sorry, I know it's Nick Cage's birthday. Justin Bartha might be the best thing about this movie. He is so note perfect yes. as the archetypic uh, the, the archetypic best friend who also cracks jokes and doesn't really have all the knowledge but he's just he keeps he's the voice of the audience in this movie so he's kind of like an inverse of the Shakespearean course and he just he kind of says what we're all thinking 
throughout the movie, and he knocks everyone out of the park. So I'm definitely giving Justin Bartha full top billing for National Treasure. Yeah, he does all the things that I wish we got to see from Emilio Estevez in the first Mission Impossible movie. Oh. Yes, I'm still mad. Spoiler alert that they killed him very early. Yeah. But let's take a trip back to 2004 because we do need to get context on what critics and audiences were saying, why there's such a big disparity between what the critics and what the audience thought about this film. Um, so with that, we're going to need Tim our illustrious review curation manager to take us back there and let us know what folks were saying. Tim, take it away. Thanks, Jacqueline. So National Treasure is one of those movies where you have the protagonist running around looking for clues that are historic, that lead to something much bigger, that goes all the way to the top. And it's not much of a surprise that a lot of critics thought that it was a derivative mix. And for the negative reviews, there was a sense that the movie was so preposterous that you just can't suspend disbelief. That in addition to being derivative, it was ridiculous. On the other hand, the critics who liked it said, well, yeah, it's silly, but it also values people being smart over people using violence. And if it gets the kids interested in history, then all the better. So how bad is that? It's at 46% on the tomato meter with 179 reviews, and it's got a 76% audience score. And they made a couple more of these, so it's pretty obvious people liked it enough. <laughs> um, so what do the critics have to say about this one? In a rotten review... Emmy Russell of the Portland Oregonian wrote that National Treasure was a decidedly less exciting popcorn movie that tries to mix Indiana Jones, The Da Vinci Code, and several strands of conspiracy theory into one blandly entertaining package. On the other hand, in a fresh review, Carrie Rickey of the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote that National Treasure may fall a notch below Pirates of the Caribbean on the pleasure-o-meter, but it does give American history sex appeal and it celebrates a guy who relies on brainware rather than gadgets. So we hold these truths to be self-evident that it is impossible for Nicolas Cage to be in a boring movie. But as far as the merits go, I'll leave that to Mark and Jacqueline. Thank you, sir. All I will say is, I'm, you know, they made another one. People like this. Let's just enjoy the joy of this movie. And I know this is like such a twist for me, but I didn't have a problem turning off my brain for this one. Marlo, what about you? I mean... Is there a reason why this particular movie, when you watched it, you're like, yep, this is why I'm digging it. Serve me up some more. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I just it's I think it's mostly down to Nicolas Cage. There are a lot of cageisms in this movie. Um, I kind of have to disagree on the Justin Bartha tip. I mean, I, I do think he was better than he was in Geely, maybe. But, <laughs> but I mean, I, I think, you know, I think he's almost doing this movie owes a lot to the Italian job, which came out like a year and a half before. And he's kind of doing an impression of Seth Green in The Italian Job, but like kind of a worse version of it. He's like the guy in the truck who's making sort of quips throughout the movie. Um, but, but, you know, I mean, I, I, do, I do think that tonally, at least he sort of is a good foil to Diane Kruger, who's playing it very straight, um, which is which is sort of interesting. Um, but no, I mean, I think it's, <laughs> it's mostly down to Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage's highlights in his hair. Nicolas Cage just... Doing all kinds of crazy stuff uh, is what I enjoyed about the movie. 
That's why I feel like Bartha is such a great anchor for Cage because Cage has the ability to just take these flights of fancy and you kind of get to see early real crazy eyes Nick Cage in this movie a couple times. And I think Bartha is just like there to just to deliver such a deadpan line to just bring everybody right back down to earth. And so it's nice to have somebody like that in the movie who who believes in this lore, this fantastical mythology, but also can like kind of speak for the rest of us here. It's like, okay, relax, Nick. We get it. (laughs) <laughs> I will say this though before you like go too deep into Justin Bartha the Diane Kruger I think is also the problem with that because she is so straight laced it's almost like depressing and I, I don't want to say there was a language barrier but I just she is in such a different movie like if she's supposed to play Elsa from you know the last crusade or like a version of that character <laughs> Elsa looked like she was having fun she was no need um, for her to have that kind of fun at all on this one. Elsa, Dr. Elsa Schneider had too much fun in The Last Crusade, okay? She slept with both of the Joneses. We know that because she talks in her sleep, but I also think that this makes sense for what the Diane Kruger character... Now I'm the one defending this movie is because Diane Kruger is... She's like a... She's she's a curator at a museum. She like she takes care of old artifacts as her job. It's like you don't necessarily think of somebody who has that line of work to be running around with Nick Cage hunting treble, tre- treasure all over the world. So I, I think it does kind of work. But, you know, it's maybe I'm just excited because I watched this movie again last night and I and I was reminded how much I loved it. Oh, no. Yeah, she's very much the straight laced National Archivist who's kind of falls for Nick Cage and his pop collar and his highlights and everything. You know, she needs she needs <laughs> sort of not going to let those highlights go. I'm just I'm just saying she needs some sort of excitement in her life or something. And Nick Cage apparently represents that. So. Hey, in the art world, Nick Cage is the baddest of the bad boys. Like he is literally like, let me be the rough. You know, he's the Marlon Brando in like streetcar named desire actor version of like archaeologists slash historians. But Marlo bringing up Diane actually probably brings up, I think it like before you were telling us that even though she's off, her offness is actually part of one of your more favorite scenes, which is the worst product placement I've probably seen in a movie (laughs) that's supposed to be about history. There is an almost five minute sequence in this film inside of an urban outfitters. And, and, you know, we know that Jerry Bruckheimer films are like, we know that Jerry Bruckheimer films are notorious for product placement, particularly the Michael Bay ones. I mean, like, I think in the first 10 minutes of the Island, there's like 200 instances of product placement. But I mean, you know, in this film in particular, it's so odd because it's the only major form of product placement in the movie, but it's so blatant and it's so random. It's like, after they get those, you know, letters off the Declaration of Independence or, or whatever, whatever in the National Archives, I think it's the Constitution or something at that point. I mean, then they end up in an Urban Outfitters changing. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's such a bizarre scene because it cuts to Nicolas Cage and Diane Kruger in changing rooms that are right next to each other. And you can kind of see inside the other one. They can see inside each other's changing room. And it's in the middle of the store. So everyone can see them having this conversation. It's just in the middle of the store. And the barrier is kind of almost like right above where, you know, their chest would be. So just the entire store is watching them have this bizarre conversation. And Nicolas Cage is kind of hitting on her while they're having, while they're changing in an Urban Outfitters. I mean, that's when you you would do it. That's when you would do it. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. He's saying stuff like, you know, has anyone, have you ever told anyone you'd love them before? And she's for some reason like, digging all of this like 
this weird guy hitting on her in an urban outfitters right after, right when they're in the middle of a mission. And then it's, I don't know, it's so bizarre and it works. I mean, she's digging it. It's sort of, it, it ends with this shot where her, she almost goes into a, like on point, like a ba- ballerina or something where her toes sort of like arch up. And then there's a direct like close up shot of her foot as it sort of angles up towards Nicolas Cage. And it's really, really bizarre. So you get your sense of absolute certainty from him, do you? Well, I'm sure I don't know what you mean. Well, you're certain the treasure is real, despite what anyone else thinks. No, but I hope it's real. I mean, I've dreamt it's real since my grandfather told me about it. I don't want to hold it. I feel like I'm so close I can taste it. But I just, I, I just want to know it's not just something in my head or in my heart. People don't really talk that way, you know? I know, but they think that way. And then, and then, like, I mean, they spend so much time inside of this Urban Outfitters. There's even a sequence where Nicolas Cage is, like, having this repartee with a hipster cashier who refuses to give him a $100 bill to look on the back of so that he can get a clue. But, I mean, the whole, the whole scene is just completely bonkers. Wait, wait, wait. You're going to love this. Excuse me, can I see one of those $100 bills I paid you with? No. Oh, well, uh, here, I have this uh, diver's watch. It's called a Submariner. I dive with it. It's actually quite valuable. You can use it as collateral. Thank you. On the back of a $100 bill is an etching of Independence Hall based on a painting done in the the 1780s. And this guy, the artist, was actually a friend of Benjamin Franklin's. It's wonderful. (laughs) I do love the bonkersness of it, though. I didn't love that one as much, but I'm curious, Mark, do you have the balls to, you know, put on the full court press in the middle of an Urban Outfitters? Um, Is that the scene that (laughs) that Corda clicked in with you? Well, for a bulk of this movie, one can be forgiven if they suspect that the national treasure we're looking for is actually under an Urban Outfitters, that the Knights Templar had this whole thing set up and they are the ones behind this corporate entity that is masking itself as a clothing store. There used to be one right next to the Comedy Store Condo in La Jolla, California, near San Diego. And you'd go in there just during the day just to kill time before the show, maybe look for something to wear on stage that night. And there were a lot, there was a lot of cuteness happening in that store. And maybe you want to strike up a conversation with someone. Their dressing rooms are not normal. It, it's not like you're at Sears or JCPenney and you just go to the far corner for the dressing room. The dressing rooms are just everywhere. So it's a more socialized dressing environment. Having said that, I totally forgot about that scene until Marlo just brought it up. <laughs> so yeah, and if you're gonna, it's, <laughs> it's amazing because then they're sort of dressed in Urban Outfitters for the next like allegedly dressed in Urban Outfitters for the next like forty minutes of the movie. So I mean, it's like, is Urban Outfitters sort of the treasure hunting? You know, why? why Wait a why minute, are they though. Dressed in Urban Outfitters. Let's do a little detective work, National Treasure style. This is before Urban Outfitters was the thing that it became in like the early 2010s. This movie was marketed to children. So is this the movie that is responsible for all of those kids being obsessed with Urban Outfitters about 10 to eight years later? Is this the movie that sort of like inceptioned the hipster movement? (gasps) I wonder if every child who saw this movie then 
seven years later, went to go see another John Turtletop Nicholas Cage team up the Sorcerer's Apprentice as teenagers and were wearing Urban Outfitters because it was just ingrained subliminally into their consciousness. That's how you get them. You get them in the hypothalamus with product placement when they're six years old. Now, yep. as far as the context of this movie, I think this scene works just because we we know so little about Diane Kruger's character. The only real hints we get to any backstory with her is when she receives a present from Nick Cage after he has this failed attempt to convince her in a meeting setting that, hey, somebody's going to try to sue the Declaration of Independence. He notices in her office, she has all of these commemorative buttons that were George Washington's sort of the very first political buttons. And he says that, oh, you're missing one. Nick Cage happens to have that one. He sends that to her as a gift. Upon receiving the gift, Diane Kruger just has this aside to her secretary. Oh, I hope it's not from this guy because it was probably a breakup she just had so let's not forget the fact that she's coming off a breakup and Nicolas Cage is not only a rebound what better rebound than one that's gonna put you in some danger trot you across the globe and involve you in the greatest treasure hunt of all time I mean that's a nice way of putting the fact that he is literally just trying to insert his you know romantic aspirations into oh, everything that he is doing in like a, an appropriate way how because i just don't get them as a couple i just don't and like and you know what it is when there is already a better couple on screen that i'm shipping in my brain i have a hard time it's the whole when jen showed up on dawson's creek thing everybody knew that dawson and joey were supposed to be together or at least, or at least at that point anyway. But then Jen shows up. Diane Kruger is the Jen, and it is actually the Justin Barthen character that I want him to. That that's the real love story at the center of National Treasure. If you go back and look at it, you can see that it's there. And is I'm who Bartha so- and Kruger? No, Bartha and Nicolas Cage, like those two, they are partners. They Mm. went through an extreme amount of trauma together. They almost died together. This is the stuff that Speed was made of. See, I got a different one. My couple is actually a couple that goes through all of the events that you might in coupledom during the course of this movie, and that would be Sean Bean and Nicolas Cage. Because my my two favorite scenes, my, my, my number one favorite scene in this movie is when Christopher Plummer, as the grandfather of a very young boy who's going to grow up to be Nicolas Cage, <laughs> have fun with that kid, is he's explaining the history of this treasure. And I just thought that was such a great sequence to lock you into exactly what this movie is. That's one of those things that if I see this movie in the theater, my entire large popcorn is finished by the time John Voight enters the room and says, hey, stop feeding my kid lies. I wasted 20 years of my life on this crap. Grandpa! You're not supposed to be up here. Looking at that? I just wanted to know. Yeah. You're old enough, I suppose. You should know the story. Okay, here we go. It was 1832 on a night much like this. My other favorite scene is after the breakup of Sean Bean and Nick Cage because they're looking for the treasure at the beginning of the film. Sean Bean turns on his former friend and now they're enemies through the film, but they're forced to team up one last time 
sort of, to find the treasure. They have to work together to a point. And I love watching that. I love watching him and and this guy, their enemies. They know that eventually he's going to end with one of them with the treasure. The other one might end up dead, but they have to work together because there's no way to get into this particular room if they're going to be at odds. And and I just thought that was such a cool moment. That That's my favorite part of the movie that's not a narration explaining the whole thing is watching them forced to team up right before Sean Bean tries to kill Nicolas Cage again. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Mm. I have some questions about Sean Bean in this movie. I mean, well, first off, Sean Bean's hair is the blondest of anyone in this movie. I mean, and it, it changes lengths like four times. Yeah. And it's, it's blonder than Diane Kruger. I mean, it, it is the blondest hair in this movie. It's blonder than the wig on John Boyd's head when he pops out of the attic, um, which I also wanted to talk about, but I'm confused about Sean Bean's character because I mean, what is his motivation other than being sort of a greedy bitch? I don't really know what, I don't really know what, like why he's stealing the money or where that's his motivation in Goldeneye. That's his motivation. Sort of. If you want to call it in freaking Lord of the Rings, he's just greedy and he plays it. Well, why are you trying to read too much into it? It's true. And he's British. So he has to be the bad guy in this movie. (laughs) I read a lot into his care. I I think he does love the lore. I I, I think that that Bean's character does care about this. And I think that he holds it in a similar esteem to Nick Cage. And maybe that has poisoned his thinking and his rationale to the point of villainry. But I I think he does actually give an S about this stuff. He's not just looking for the gold to make a quick buck. I think he cares about the history of it. There's little there's little looks that he gives throughout the movie that I noticed upon rewatching it where Part of him is torn because he does know how valuable this stuff is and how much he does care about finding it. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that the Sean Bean character has more to him than maybe we got to see in this one. He's just, you know, whatever the whatever villain. And I don't think Sean Bean signs up at that point in his career to do this one. Well, maybe it's post Lord of the Rings. No, he doesn't have to. He can do what he wants. Um, But again, (laughs) not to bring it back to my favorite odd couple, 
But the scene for me that like is the reason why we have a missed romantic comedy between these two is the scene when they're in the office with Diane Kruger and, you know, Cage is flirting with her, but you have just Justin over there and he's just like, oh, and that's the moment when the FBI stopped listening to us. And, and like, he's looking at him. He's like, should I tell her what I'm going to say about it being invisible? And he's like, no, don't do it. That scene and the comedy that they are willing to do in that scene. And then that juxtaposition of Diane Kruger, not even doing Doing the straight man in a believable way because she's almost a little bit too like dismissive and weird about it. I'm like, either get in on the joke, girl, or don't. But that is the scene for me. It's absolutely hilarious. It sets up the whole tone for the movie. And it's kind of like, if you can enjoy that, it's going to be a good time. If you can't enjoy that, then this movie is going to be lost on you. A map of what? The location of... <clears throat> of hidden items of historic and intrinsic value. A treasure map? That's where we lost the FBI. You're treasure hunters, aren't you? We're more like treasure protectors. Mr. Brown, I have personally seen the back of the Declaration of Independence at no map. It's invisible. And that's where we lost the Department of Homeland Security. Also bringing it back to Sean Bean, it's probably why this movie is less liked because he doesn't die in it. Uh. And and like, I think that's like a problem with it. I don't know, Marlo, what about you? Is there any is there any other moment or scene where you were like, okay, this is why people need to give this movie a second chance if they're maybe like unable to suspend disbelief with the uh, with the concept? Yes, before I, I briefly go back to Mark's scene in the attic, which I'm obsessed with, because I mean... Okay, so this is the cold open, um, and uh, you know, young Nicolas Cage as a boy is rummaging through the attic. Christopher Plummer sort of pops out in a jump scare um, and <laughs> and scares the child, and then he gives the whole spiel on you know the whole backstory of the film, and then John Voight pops up again, jump scare number two, sort of in just the most insane. Christopher Nolan blonde wig you've ever seen. And it's crazy because they didn't de-age anything else about him. He still looks like a 60-something-year-old, but they just put this like blonde wig on top of his head. And he's only nine years older than Christopher Plummer when they filmed this movie. Yes, so the yes. fact that he's the son of Christopher Plummer just looks completely bonkers. But <laughs> the scene I wanted to go to is uh, the National Archives Gala Toast where it's sort of this black tie event, Nicolas Cage, you know, dresses up as a janitor to break into it and then changes into his tuxedo in his sort of James Bond moment. And then he gives this toast, you know, holding a glass of champagne and it's a toast and he's hitting on Diane Kruger at the same time. And I know both my scenes involve him, you know, clumsily hitting on Diane Kruger, but it's just because their chemistry, like you said, is bananas. It doesn't make it, any sense. Um, it's negative. It's like when you try to put the two magnets together in in, in middle school. Like it just yeah. doesn't go. <laughs> I know. So he gives he gives this speech at the National Archives Gala. He says, you know, to high treason. That's what these men were committing when they signed the Declaration of Independence. Had we lost the war, they would have been hanged, beheaded, drawn and quartered. And oh, my personal favorite, had their entrails cut out and burned. And he <laughs> yells. He yells burned in like the most Nicolas Cage way. And she is just, you can see the reaction on her face. She's visibly put off by this and just shocked. A toast, yeah? To high treason. That's what these men were committing when they signed the declaration. Had we lost the war, they would have been hanged, beheaded, drawn and quartered. Oh, 
Oh, my personal favorite. Have their entrails cut out and burned. <laughs> and then he sort of takes it back and he sort of gets in a hushed tone and says, so here's the men who did what was considered wrong in order to do what they knew was right. And then he lowers his voice to a whisper and repeats what they knew was right while looking very intently in Diane Kruger's eyes. And then she's digging it now. She's like, for some reason, vibing him back. Oh, she's and then in, baby. Cage. Again, and the things that are panty droppers in this movie. She's in, but, but she also is playing, it's it's Nick Cage versus, I mean, if you think Diane Kruger leaves a, her character leads a boring life in this, who's the stiff that she is with at the party? Because that guy is just a drip of a human. Yeah. So anybody, I don't care how wacky you might be, Anybody who's giving a lively toast is now the person that you want to be with the rest of the evening over that dude. Yeah, I agree. Also, can we also talk about the fact, by the way, that dude was the rock star of the archaeology history world before Nicolas Cage shows up. That dude is the guy that's like, that dude is the guy in um, Goodwill Hunting that's flirting with Minnie Driver before Mm. Will shows up and he's like, how about them apples? I love that dude because he just, I love the fact when he gets embarrassed. Also, though, can we give a big shout out to um, John Turtletob, the director of this? Mark, we love his movies, the trash ones and the really uplifting ones. We've talked about The Meg, which is, I think, his greatest work ever. And when we can do this on the podcast, I will be so excited. He also, though, he did um, uh, Three Ninjas, Driving Me Crazy, uh, a movie that I love, but not a lot of people saw Phenomenon, and the greatest romantic comedy ever, While You Were Sleeping. I This man is an underrated genius of our generation, is yeah, all I have to say. His tomato meter average is rotten. I mean, we, we could have a whole episode just yes. on John Turtletop, because he's only 48% on the tomato meter for all of his movies. That's his average. He does have a fresh audience average at 62%, but he's responsible for giving us Rocky, Colt, Tum Tum. And I do find a lot of entertainment in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. He did Last Vegas, which was the old dudes going to Vegas for one last trip in 2013. That's a fun movie. The Meg did leave me a little disappointed, though. As you know, Jacqueline, you know, I was very excited about The Meg, and I was a little disappointed about that. So I do think National Treasure... I uh, you're going to hate me for this. I have not seen while you were sleeping. I love romantic comedies. Never seen while you were sleeping. But as of now, by the way, wait, I'm going to say National Treasure is his best movie. Okay, but I just have to say when you did that for folks that are not watching us on Peacock, which if you're not watching us on Peacock, did you know you could watch us on Peacock? Me and Lucy's jaw dropped with the same sort of slow like. Oh, and Marla. literally on the same motion as you were saying, you have never seen while you were sleeping. It was there. Marlo, you got my back on this or are you a, a while oh, you no, were no. sleeping? I love while you were sleeping. And this is the time of year to see it. It's a Christmas movie. Yes. Um, I would, you know, no, no, I mean, I love that movie. It's it's Sandra Bullock, you know, working for the MTA. Yes. <laughs> and also, a- Bill, yeah, Bill Pullman's great in it. it no, it's 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 delightful. Yes. Um, Also, I will go ahead and Lucy, um, please say hi because it's 2021. I want people to make sure that they know that you're here with us. Happy New Year. (laughs) Hi, Marlo. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi, Mark. I'm so happy to be with you in this new year and happy birthday, Nick. I love you. Yes. Happy birthday, Nick. Um, But but I'm glad I'm bringing Lucy into it. You know, she's our producer. So let's get into what they were saying about the film as far as like the industry inside of it, because like Tim talked about it in his segment, but like everybody talked about how derivative it is. And I know that is something that like I get accused of like saying a lot, but 
if you do the same thing, it's not a problem if you're not bored. I've seen hundreds of Law and Order episodes and the formula of that's still the same. Somebody's going to jail at the end of it and there's going to be like the dun dun. But I can still watch them because they find how to make it compelling, even though it's the same story every time. And so, yeah, this is derivative of like, you know, the Da Vinci Code, Indiana Jones, sort of like Italian job, find a treasure. But I thought it still did it in a new way because it was geared so much to the history and so much to the kids. I don't know. What about you, Marlo? Yeah, I felt the same way. And, and you know, I just think there are so many lovably insane Nicolas Cage scenes in this movie. I mean, you know, I, I, another scene, I, you know, and not to get into this, another scene that I love is the final scene in the movie where I'm pretty sure Diane Kruger drew Nicolas Cage a map to where they're going to have sex because, <laughs> because, because the final scene of the movie is them sort of outside of a, you know, stately, I think British mansion that they've purchased with their money. And, um, and she sort of hands him a map and like flirtily, I think says, you know, you know, he's like, what is this? And she flirtily says, you'll figure it out. And then like dances into the house and Nick Cage chases after her. So I'm pretty sure that this movie ends with Diane Kruger composing a map to where she and Nick Cage are going to have sex in the house. Or better which- yet, maybe it's a map to her own treasure. Yes, exactly. Mm. I mean... <laughs> I feel like mom and dad are having a conversation and, and, and I'm just like listening and I'm not really getting all the innuendo. I, I feel like y'all are on a different point. I'm like, oh, sex, gross. I want to talk about gold. <laughs> no, I mean, there are just so many insane scenes in this. I mean, you know, there, there's, that, there's that infamous scene where he's dangling Diane Kruger in the shaft and then just sort of basically tries to kill her. I mean, he basically just drops her Ooh, in the shaft. That's a great call. That, that's at the end, It's near the end of the movie, and it's the Dr. Elsa Schneider moment where Indiana Jones, um, she, is, so in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, Indy's holding on to her. There's a crevice because they removed the grail, and so now the grail's dangling, and Elsa lets her greed get the better of her, and it ends up making her slip out of Indy's grip, and she falls to her death into hell. With this scene, Diane Kruger is being held by Nicolas Cage. She could fall to her death, but she's not greedy about it. Nicolas Cage gets a little greedy because he wants to rescue the Declaration of Independence. So I I, I saw that scene, and it's so funny you brought that up, Marlo, because he just does kind of chuck her and hopes that she lands on this wooden board that is still a good 10, 15 feet drop. But then the movie does such a good job of keeping its tone because right away he gets the Declaration of Independence, he gets down, he apologizes, and then her line saying, I would have done the same thing to you, it's it, it's almost like the Men in Black memory eraser where the audience doesn't remember this guy just chose a document over her, a human life. It makes it all okay, and we're all just fine with it. Now we're back in the adventure. That's that's part of the magic of this movie is we forget about any instance of violence that we might find unsettling otherwise. Yeah, because it commits to a tone, which is, I think, what was weird about, like, people, like, nobody understood why this movie made the money that it made or the way it's, like, had this insane cinema score. And the fact that adults were into it more than kids, that was the other thing that, like, in Mark's research, when we were sort of, like, looking at um, why this movie was such a phenomenon as far as audiences, he really keyed in on the fact that, like, the people who mostly saw it were older people who liked the idea of going to see like a historical treasure map movie. And although it did probably have a huge kid audience too, it was part of that like 
what could you go to see as somebody who's got kids over that Pixar age, but maybe under the age where you could go see adult movies with them? You know, this is before those movies were at home. Like you could you can find stuff on Netflix now that sort of fits into that that sort of like sweet spot, but you couldn't find that necessarily back in 2004. And so I think that's why it was such a thing, but I don't know, Marlo, were you, were you writing entertainment in the 2004 timeframe? Were you part of the, of the, the internet journalist landscape during that time? I don't think it was internet. I think I was writing for my college paper around that time. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, it, it is funny. And it, it's funny to see John Voigt as a reluctant conspiracy theorist, considering that, <laughs> Considering that right now he is just a full-blown conspiracy theorist in real life. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's very funny to see him, you know, have to somehow like ease into the conspiracy theory part of part of this film. When right now, right now yeah, he's just, you know, he'll, he'll believe anything that, that you know, your, his nephew writes on Facebook or something. It's so funny. Yeah, he is the anchor in this. It's like when John Voight becomes the, the, the calming voice of reason in a movie nowadays, you're like, oh, my God, we're really getting out there, aren't we? The people that got involved in this, Nick Cage, Plummer, uh, Harvey Keitel, uh, John Voight. It's really interesting because all this was like Nick Cage at the height of his powers in a way. You know, this is post leaving Las Vegas, post Moonstruck, where he established himself as this sort of um, uh, really established method actor. You know, you know, people I remember after leaving Las Vegas, people were calling him the next Brando. I remember that so specifically and then he just went nuts pretty shortly after this and by 2009 he was running haunted mansions and losing them in foreclosure like this was the last bit of nick cage normal like i would say fair i don't know marlo you literally wrote the book on the man like what do you look at his career and sort of say it's fascinating because this is this is a film that may have changed everything for Nicolas Cage. I mean, he almost became his character in this film in a very weird way. You know, I mean, Nicolas Cage around this time was when he started snapping up mansions all over the world. <laughs> it really was like 2004, um, 2005, when Nicolas Cage bought like a 40 acre island in the Bahamas, a medieval castle in Bavaria. And, you know, around the time, right after the making of this film, he went on this grail quest where he literally was trying to hunt the Holy for the Holy Grail around the world. And that led him to buy a sort of huge manor in Rhode Island. So, I mean, it was around this time that his money problems started, you know, in um, Rhode coming Island. If, if you're looking at a grail diary, like what Sean Connery has and the last page of it says, and then you'll find the grail in Rhode Island. I think somebody gave you a lemon. Like, like I'm pretty <laughs> sure I don't know a lot about the Holy Grail. I'm pretty sure I went to Catholic school. I don't think Rhode Island ever came up in any of uh, the grail quest. Did he like Marlo? How close did he actually? I'm so fascinated with this. And that's why I'm glad National Treasure didn't come out when I was like a little kid, because this probably would have set me on the path to become like an archaeologist. And I never would have set foot on a comedy stage thanks to this movie. But did he get close? Did he like like where did he get? How far did he get in his matriculation searching for the grail? I know it's bizarre. Apparently, according to Cage, he went to Glastonbury and sort of <laughs> ended up in like a well or something, tasting water that was allegedly in the chalice of Christ. And then and then, yeah, it brought him all the way, I guess, to Rhode Island, where he then just purchased a manor and then sort of he didn't get very far in the grail quest and kind of gave up at that point and said that it was basically all about the friends he made along the way or something. Mm. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, yeah, but maybe that's why Taylor Swift has a home in Rhode Island too. Maybe she's searching for the Holy Grail also. Oh my God, you are not. How did you find a way to put T. Smith in a Nick Cage <laughs> movie conversation? You that's great. what I'm going to think. You, Anytime I see a rich celebrity buying property in Rhode Island, I'm thinking, I know what they're doing there. No, they're looking that, for the Holy Grail. <laughs> that just proves that that Marlo writes for the Daily Beast. He knows where he knows where those clicks are coming from. Listen. <laughs> I also am very excited about the Nick Cage career just because in the midst of what you could honestly say is legitimately the entire lifeblood of the podcast, which I would like to dub our sister podcast, How Did This Get Made? I'm sure they could do like a Nick Cage month if they haven't already. You know what I mean? Of like, seriously, how did this get made? But he's about to do a movie that is like... His version of, remember the Jean-Claude Van Damme JVD movie that he did, which was like a meta movie about his life or like Pauly Shore is dead. He is about to do that. And let me just give you all the log line and please understand why this is the must-see movie for me in 2021. A cash-strapped Nick Cage agrees to make a paid appearance at a billionaire super fan birthday bash, but it's really because he's an informant for the CIA since said billionaire is a drug kingpin. And in doing so, he gets cast in a Tarantino movie. Take my money. Take all my money. I'm in. Mark, do you have a favorite recent post-2000, let's say, eight Nick Cage performance when he was just doing whatever, maybe one of his bad movies that you love or maybe one of his indie movies that people haven't seen that's amazing, like Mandy? I think Nick Cage is a phenomenal actor. And I'll say that first and foremost. I think he's got some craziness in him. I think he knows how to play crazy as well to to the cameras and to the audiences. I think that he's made a lot of choices in his life that have led him to have to do movies as opposed to wanting to do the, the plum roles. But... It's so funny when you look back on his career, how he fell into being an action star, because in The Rock, Stanley Goodspeed is not really the action cut that they're looking for. And that's a a running theme in the movie, but he ends up saving the day. So now all of a sudden he can be Cameron Poe and Con Air and be like a true badass who killed a guy and is in prison for it. But the movie that proved to me that Nick Cage still has it, that he's still an A-lister when it comes to acting chops is Joe. He was so good in that movie, and it's just such a, a heartbreaking, dramatic, slow, but you're you're into Nick Cage the whole time, and it's like, it, you, you know he's got that crazy thing, but within two seconds of him being on screen and Joe, you're like, oh, it's not one of those movies. This is going to be Nick Cage, like, doing an Oscar-worthy performance. What about you, Marlo? What's your, what's your plum picks from the later part of Nick Cage's career? I know you mentioned The Rock, which I, I do love that movie. I know that's not from the latter part of his career, but I mean, uh, which, by the way, The Rock had uh, rewrites by Aaron Sorkin and Quentin Tarantino on the script. So, I mean, Ooh. you know, I, I, I love that film. But, but you know, I, I really got to give it up for Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, which I think the Werner Herzog film and the sequel to Bad Lieutenant, uh, shout out Harvey Keitel, I guess, yeah. National Treasure. <laughs> but I mean, you know. his performance in Bad Lieutenant is just completely out of control. And it's sort of, he really does go, he went full method allegedly for this performance. Uh, When I interviewed him for Mandy, he said that, you know, we discussed how he was so method during the making of Bad Lieutenant that he was carrying around this little vial of sugar around on the set and just snorting from it, you know, between takes. And at one point, Werner Herzog went up to him and he was like, Nicholas, what what are you doing with the vial? 
what's in the vial? And Nicolas Cage got really upset at Werner Herzog for breaking his method. And he was like, you know, F you, Werner. <laughs> Get off my set. Get out of my city. It's Coke. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, it's uh, that sort of, that little anecdote to me really um, encapsulates the beauty of Nicolas Cage. He is just so fully committed he gets an idea in his head of a performance and a character and just goes full bore and is so committed to it that it'll go crazy. He seems to me to be like a golf course to interview. And what I mean by that is you could play the same course every day for a week and play, and it feels like an entirely different course every day. Is he, is he cool? And I never do this on the show, Marlo, but I'm just so fascinated with Nick Cage. Is he cool to talk to? Is he, is he warm? Is he receptive? Does he have moods? What is Nick Cage like to sit in a room with? he's really cool to talk to. It's almost like interviewing Elvis in Vegas or something because he's sort of covered in rings and has these big sunglasses and is dressed just really flamboyantly. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it is sort of like interviewing almost like a Vegas icon or something. It's, it's very strange, but no, I mean, he's, he's a nice guy and he's quite, he's quite, you know, soft-spoken and, um, and yeah, a thoughtful guy I found. Um, I mean, I didn't have a ton of time with him. I was interviewing him for Mandy, which is another one that that I really love. I mean, in that one, in that one, I believe you have Nicolas Cage snorting cocaine off a piece of broken glass before sl- slicing the throat of a demon with the broken glass. So I mean, it's it's just it's just amazing. Um, I mean, yeah, I love Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I was just gonna say I loved all of your choices, Joe. Shout out to that one. That is such a good cut for Nicolas Cage that not a lot of people have seen. I was going to say Mandy because I love that movie and I actually saw that movie at 8 a.m. at Sundance, Stone Cold Sober, which is probably the worst and best way to see it because every bit of its weirdness just washes over me. So folks, please check out Mandy. But actually the role from his later work that I like the best and it's the shortest role in the world, but I love it so much. He plays Spider-Man Noir in Spider-Man into the Mm Spider-Verse. And it's part of that like vignette of all the various, like, you know, when all of the other Spider-Mans come, I want an entire movie of Spider-Man noir so bad I can taste it. I want that movie, maybe even make it a short. I don't care because there's just so much there. A noir Spider-Man. Just think about that. Think about the funny, quippy noirs that you would get with like Billy Wilder. And then make him a freaking Spider-Man. Come on. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know. Does it, are you I with me it. on this? I don't know. So I, I love that one. But, you know, hey, look, this is a guy. Like, I was reading um, one of the articles. He's in on the joke. Like, yes, he had to do a lot of things for financial. But he's making these choices. I mean, he'll go do something like Mandy and Teen Titans Go and Spider-Verse. And then he'll go do like some weird movie that is literally straight to DVD that nobody talks about. He just, I think he just likes doing movies that are weird and fun. And if he's going to have a fun time doing it, he'll do it. He was nominated for adaptation in 2003. That was the last time that he was nominated for an Academy Award. Obviously, he won for Leaving Las Vegas. But I've always said this. I, I think that if he continues to enjoy acting and continues to pursue it, I, I think that he's got a couple more at least nominations in him. I think he's going to be one of those actors that you talk about and maybe not necessarily have a career resurgence in terms of box office. But I think that if you get Nick Cage 
at this point in his life, in even a supporting role, I think that's a home run, depending on what kind of movie you're making. I think he's still a very versatile actor, and I think he can pull off a lot of stuff. And more yeah. national treasures. We, we might get more national treasures. Like, Bob Iger teased it in, like, 2016. I don't know why it's taken this long, because the first two movies were hits. The, the second national treasure, Book of Secrets, did better at the worldwide box office than the first national treasure. So where is our national treasure three? I have a question too. This is producer Lucy. Why do you guys think he's become this kind of like living myth legend, you know, that he is now? Like why him and how did this happen? Cause he's kind of this mysterious figure and I'm always just so fascinated by him. Yeah. He really just has always leaned into the, the wildness. I mean, there are so many stories about Nick Cage too, just that are so bizarre and that have fed the mythology, kind of like Bill Murray's pranks on people. There are just so many weird little stories. Like the time that Nick Cage in New Orleans was bailed out of jail by Dog the Bounty Hunter, or like the time. Or like <laughs> wait the time a minute, Nicholas- wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Can we just take a minute to picture those two driving off into the sunset with those hairlines? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just bizarre. Or like, yeah, his different hair in different movies. Um, or like the time he bought a dinosaur skull of a Tarbosaurus for nearly three hundred thousand and it was stolen and he had to return it. It's just, you know, he is he is sort of a larger than life figure at this point, and it's or, or, I mean, the time when he was shooting Ghost Rider 2 in uh, Romania and he was getting kicked out of a Romanian nightclub and yelled, I'll die in the name of honor. <laughs> I mean, he's just done so many amazing things that he's he's just a folk hero at this point. My buddy Josh McCuga was on a private plane with him going to Las Vegas a couple of years ago. It was just one of those like like jets where they just jet suites and they just, oh, now you're in a private jet. And he was with Nick Cage. And he said, Nick Cage, well, he didn't really talk to anybody, but what he, he wasn't mean. And, and McCuga, knowing McCuga, he couldn't resist. So once the plane lands, Nick Cage has a car waiting for him on the tarmac. And Josh just goes over to him and he says, hey, man, I, I just wanted to let you know um, you would have been great as Superman. And I loved you in John Schnepp's documentary documentary our buddy john schnepp who passed away a few years ago made the documentary the death of superman lives what happened and nick cage reportedly was a fan and and had said complimentary things about that documentary that has footage of him in the suit and so nick turned around when he heard john schnepp's name and he said oh yeah john schnepp was a really cool dude and then he got into his car and drove off into the night and to hear josh tell it he says i was kind of thinking nick was going to offer me a ride to the strip he didn't but he still got to have a nick cage story which is really cool and everyone should check out the death of superman lives what happened it's a great documentary when you said nicholas cage being greeted by a car on the tarmac i pictured that scene in face off where he's sort of <laughs> where he's sort of given the the box with the gold guns in it and the tic tac or the chewing gum and, and the other stuff and oh caster uh, troy is is probably where nick is like you know what this this flair i i think i'm gonna keep this for my real life too I actually think it's earlier. People forget Vampire's Kiss. Like, I think he's always done crazy movies. It's just a lot of them turned out to be really great. Because if you look at something like Vampire's Kiss, like, that is a nuts movie. That is just a nuts movie. And, yeah, there's there's a lot of things that he did um, that I'm like, people should pay attention. He was not caring about the roles that he was taking way back when. Um, oh no, and the the voice he did for Peggy Sue, yeah, which was just like he just randomly did that, and Coppola yeah. was like, I mean, fine, but yeah, 
fine, fine, nephew, whatever you want to do. Was um, that his last Coppola movie too, right? Maybe? I think that may have been the last one. <laughs> anyway, um, but I, I just, just imagine wanna... Francis, Francis just like, hey, you know what, Nick? We work better as a trivia question than yeah. we do as director. <laughs> hey, he gave him his start though. So he put him in Cotton Club, you know, Rumble, yeah. he was in Rumblefish. He, he made him, he made him, he made him what he is. But hey, you know what? For folks that that want to take a trip down the lane of Nick Cage's later career, don't believe the hype. Check it out for yourself. There's a ton of really great stuff in there. Also, Color of Space, mm-hmm. which is one from this past year that's incredible sci-fi movie. Um, Marlo, Lucy, Mark, of course, everyone. Um, thanks for this. This was really fun. Uh, Marlo, uh, before we go, though, I want to ask you, since you're an entertainment journalist, a senior entertainment journalist uh what are you recommending for folks to watch because it seems like we're going to need some recommendations to watch stuff at home for just a little while longer so what can folks do yes i mean i would i would recommend against the undoing which i finally (laughs) finished recently on hbo and which is good for the first few episodes but then it just goes down some very strange david e kelly uh territory but um one thing i would highly recommend people watching is murder on middle beach if they haven't seen it it's a really fantastic docuseries on hbo it's only four episodes and it's about this um young man whose mother was was horrifically murdered in a suburb in connecticut but then he sort of starts investigating the murder on his own and uncovers this really vast conspiracy involving all his relatives so it's Ooh. it's really fascinating and one of the best true crime docuseries of the year, and I would highly recommend it. What's the I name gotta again? check that out. Yeah, what's the name again? This was, it's I'm, Murder on Middle Beach on I'm HBO. I'm about this. I'm about this. All right. And uh, Marlo, where can folks find you and what have you been working on? I know you, know, you always have stuff on the Daily Beast, but uh, what should folks be on the lookout for? Yeah, let's see. Um, I did a, a really interesting interview with the actor Nick Stahl, which should be running this weekend. He's he's the guy who played uh, John Connor in Terminator uh, Rise of the Machines and um, was the lead on Carnival and was on Bully and uh, was, you know, quite a quite a big actor for a while, but then, you know, fell on some hardships, um, found himself on Skid Row and battling drug addiction and really left the industry for about seven, seven or eight years and is now making a comeback. So uh, I think it's an interesting profile and that should be running this weekend. Uh, So I was, it was nice talking to him and he seems like a good guy. Yeah, actually I'm very interested in that. He was also uh, the yellow dude from uh, Sin City. Yes. After DiCaprio turned it down. Yes. Um, Yeah. That's so crazy that that's the way that goes. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you again, Marlo. This was really fun. Um, Anyone, if you by any chance have not seen National Treasure, the first or the also very good sequel, you can watch both of those on Fandango and Voodoo. They're available to rent or stream. You can, of course, follow Marlo on the social medias at Marlo NYC. You can follow me at that Jacqueline on all forms of social media. And you can follow Mr. Mark Ellis at Mark Ellis Live. Mark, you have some shows coming up, right? Or no, you won't. I'm still working. We're, we're, still, yeah. we're still working on maybe a new virtual show, but I'm probably not going to get back to full touring until the summer at the earliest. But it's a big year for me already because now I know someone personally named Marlo. I think it's one of the coolest names you could possibly give to a kid. And so Marlo, I am thrilled that you are the Marlo in my life. Welcome. (laughs) 
<laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm thrilled too. We want to remind all of you, wherever you're listening to us, please rate and subscribe. Tell your friends. And this episode was the result of our friend person with the last name Picard, because we still are a little bit unsure about that. Chassie. Joss. Um, they emailed us and recommended it. So please do that. You can email us at Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. RT is wrong at Rotten Tomatoes.com. That is RT is wrong at Rotten Tomatoes.com. We want to hear what you guys are saying. On behalf of Lucy, our producer, Tim Ryan, Mark Hoffmeyer, my co-host, Mr. Mark Ellis, and our very special guest this week, Milo Stern. I want to thank you all for listening. I'm Jacqueline, and we'll see y'all next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.